All right, so we're going to finish up John chapter 7 really briefly and then get into John chapter 8. Now, I'm going to just kind of give you a brief synopsis of how chapter 7 ends. Remember, the Pharisees are, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they send out the temple guards to try to arrest Jesus, and they come back empty-handed. And the leaders are like, what happened? Where is he? And they're like, well, you know, no one has ever taught like this man has taught before. I mean, even the temple guards, they're, they're just taken back by the authority and the, and the teaching that Jesus brings. And so, and so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they get up their shorts all tied up in a knot, and they're, they're really angry, and they're like, you know, these people don't know the law, and they're all under a curse. I guess, I guess maybe they were a little insulted that they, being the teachers, would hear something like, well, this guy, we've never heard anybody teach like this. You know, pastors have this thing, so when we bring in guest speakers here, um, somebody who, who doesn't go here and somebody you haven't heard before, many of you will go up to that person and say, oh, that was a great sermon. I mean, it really spoke to my heart. I mean, it was, it was and I'm standing there like, well, my chopped liver? I mean, come on. But, but, but don't get me wrong, because when I go teach at another church, I get the same thing, and that pastor has the same thing. So it's kind of like that, that here's these teachers of the law, and, and the, all these people are going, this guy is like amazing. And so they're a little, they're a little insulted by the whole thing. In fact, Nicodemus is the only one that's going to stand up for Jesus. And he takes a verbal spanking too from the Pharisees and from the teachers of the law. And so that's kind of how chapter 7 ends. And now we get into a very interesting text in the Gospel of John. It's chapter 7, verse 53, into chapter 8, verse 11. Now this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, most scholars will say that this story does not belong in the Gospel of John. Some of you have little notes that say, this text isn't part of the earliest manuscripts um, in your Bible. And, and because the, the scholars say that, that this, this is probably part of an oral tradition of Jesus that, that they felt very important to include, but they didn't know where to put it. And so they decided that they would just put it in the Gospel of John. And this makes... This makes the history of this story a little suspect. Not that it did not happen, just, just did it really happen at the festival? We're not sure. And in fact, the, the language that's used, the way it's written, is very inconsistent with the, with the vocabulary that John would use in writing his entire gospel. And it kind of interrupts the flow of his thought. But we have found it to be in the Bible. And so if it's there, we need to engage it. And so that's where we're headed this morning. So John chapter 7, verse 53. Watch this. Ta-da! How cool is that, huh? For all you lazy people that don't bring your tennis racket to a tennis game. I mean, your Bible to church. I'm sorry. You'll get that later. All right. What am I reading? <laughs> 753. Yeah, no, not last weekend or two weeks ago. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus comes back. 
the next morning, he plops down. He's going to start teaching the people. He actually starts teaching the people. Now, I would assume that he's going to gather a pretty good crowd because he's building up quite a reputation. And this woman who is caught in adultery is brought before him. And it says that she was caught in the act of adultery. That means there are witnesses. And these people are obeying the law of Moses. They are, they are taking the law of Moses and saying, this is what has happened. And we are bringing this person in front of Jesus to see what Jesus would have to say about it. Now, the law they're quoting is in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. It says this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay, so right away, we could see in this story, something is, something is very, very wrong here. This woman was caught in the act of adultery, red-handed. Now, the law says that both the adulterer and the adulteress are supposed to be put to death. You cannot commit adultery by yourself. But the woman is the only one brought in front of Jesus. There is no man here. And so these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, who know the law, who have memorized the entire Torah, all the prophets, all of the Psalms, they, they know this stuff, they are actually breaking the law. But yet they're bringing this woman in front of Jesus to see what he would have to say about it. Now, I'm sure that they believe they have a really good plan going here. They have a really good thing going. They have thought this thing through. It almost seems foolproof. They've got Jesus right where they want him. I mean, if, if Jesus answers, you should stone her, well then, well, so much for the whole friend of sinners thing going on, right? And, and while the Messiah is supposed to bring enlightenment to the Jewish people and, and, and the whole stone her thing, that's part of the law, so there's nothing new going on there. And Jesus will be actually breaking Roman law. If he says to stone her, that an occupied nation could not enact its own death sentence. So if Jesus says stone her, then he is breaking Roman law, and that can get him into a lot of trouble. This, this seems foolproof. But then if Jesus, Jesus says, well, you know, you should just, you should just let her go. Well, if, if that happens, that just opens up a whole other can of worms. If he says, let her go, then, then Jesus is he's, he's encouraging disobedience to the law. And that could be taken as he's encouraging or at least allowing adultery to take place. In the Jewish faith, there are three big sins they would consider. Um, idolatry, murder, and adultery. And if Jesus were just to let this whole thing slide, this would be huge. This would, this would be a huge mistake, and the people, the common people, would have been in an uproar over this. See, they think they have him. Either way, he can't make one decision or the other without getting himself into trouble. Their past attempts, they've all failed. They couldn't catch him. But this time, this time, oh yeah. They have to be thinking, we have him. If he breaks, if he, um, if, if he tells that the woman should be stoned, he breaks he breaks Roman law, and he could be arrested and killed. If he says, no, let her go, he breaks Jewish law, and he could be arrested and killed. I'm sure the Jewish leaders think they've, they've got a win-win here. Well, let's see what Jesus does. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote 
on the ground. Jesus seems to be unfazed by this whole thing. He bends down. He begins to write in the sand. This has to seem very, very odd. This, this, this is a very intense situation where this woman is dragged by this mob and put in front of Jesus, and this accusation has been made about her. Things are probably really heated up at this point, and he just kind of bends down and begins to write with his finger in the sand. What in the world is he writing? I mean, is he just trying to buy, to buy time? Maybe trying to think about what he's going to say? I doubt it. Or maybe, maybe he's presenting this whole thing before God, praying, asking God for wisdom, what to do. I would doubt that also. Maybe, maybe he's trying to make the leaders a little, a little uncomfortable. I mean, here they are, they're, they're worked up into a tizzy, and he just like bends down and begins to write in the sand. And they're just like standing around going, what, what, what's, what's he doing? What's going on? There has to be whispering start. There has to be murmuring start. What in the world is this guy doing? What? What's he writing? What I find interesting is the story says that Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. In the Bible, I believe that every word, every thought is put there for a reason. And there's a few times only in the Bible where the hand of God, the finger of God actually writes. Exodus Deuteronomy, when God writes the Ten Commandments on the stone and he gives them to Moses. In Daniel chapter 5, there's a hand that appears and writes on the wall, pretty much the condemnation of King, King Belshazzar, and, and, and pre, it writes that he is going to die. And so now we have Jesus bending down with his finger, writing in the ground. What is he doing? What is he writing? The last time the hand of God wrote something, it was pretty powerful. Things happened. The Ten Commandments, the death of a king. What could it be? Now, whatever it was, it must have been taking some time. It must have been taking his time because the leaders, they press him for an answer. They want to know, Jesus, hello, what, what say you, Jesus? What should we do? And Jesus slowly, I'm sure, I'm reading into the story, but this is if I was Jesus, I would stand up slowly. I'm sure he looks the people right in the eye, and he says one of the most damaging lines, I think, in all of the Bible. He says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And look what happens. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing with her. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Now, my brain starts to think about this. These are the Pharisees. These are the Jewish leaders. These are the teachers of the law. These men believe that they know how to follow God. In fact, they keep all of the rules. They keep all of the regulations. They do it right. They believe, they actually believe that the Jewish nation is under Roman um, persecution and oppression because the rest of the people, the people out there, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They are not following God the way God is supposed to be followed. They don't believe that Jesus has any authority. They don't believe he's divine, let alone having holding any divine authority. If they did, they wouldn't be out to kill him. They wouldn't be out to trap him. So what is it that makes them just drop their rocks or, or just begin to walk away? 
what was Jesus riding in the sand? I wonder if they could have caught a glimpse of what it actually was. Maybe, maybe during that whole thing, they started to move up a little bit. They're a little bit curious. Remember, he drops back down and he continues to write. Well, I have a theory. Now, it's only a theory because nobody really knows what Jesus was writing in the sand. None of the scholars really know. They just kind of gloss over this whole story anyway because it's really not supposed to be there. But I have a theory. Now, I spent a lot of time just kind of moving through and reading the Bible and studying Jewish history and trying to figure out, because I didn't want to just make up something that somebody else said because, well, personally, I think they're just dumb, some of the, reasons, some of the things. But, but what was it that Jesus was writing? Here's my theory. Jesus is writing a line from the book of Exodus. Now, they didn't have numbers back then, so, but I believe he was writing, my belief, from Exodus 23, verse 7. It says this, Have nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent or an honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. The false charge does mean to, to drum up something, to make something up. But it also, in the Hebrew, it also means to deceive, the act of deception. And the rabbis teach, when they teach this verse, it means not to condemn an innocent person for your own personal gain. All right, so, wait, wait. The woman, she got caught. It doesn't say that this was made up. It doesn't say that they were trying to lie. She was caught in the act of adultery. So that means that she's guilty. So how does this correspond with, with, with what's going on in the story? Ha-ha, give me a minute, I'll explain. The woman in this story, she is just an object. She is just a pawn in a game to catch Jesus. If they were really, really concerned about her sin, about her adultery, they, the man would be there with her. And they wouldn't have brought her to Jesus to see what he would say. She is guilty. In the law, it says that both of them should be Stoned to death. They're not concerned with her. It's Jesus they want. They are trying to trap him. He is the one that's being accused. He is the one that's on trial, if you will. See, up until this point, they really can't find anything wrong with him. The people love him. They've been trying to arrest him. The leaders know that, that they're, leading, they're leading the people away from them. They're losing their influence, and that hurts them financially too. And Jesus is just generally making them look bad. And so they create this plan. They create this deception to try to catch him to get him to say something that they could use in a court of law against him. They are trying to condemn an innocent person through deception for their own personal gain. And these men know God's law. These are the teachers of the law. They are well-educated. And I believe that they've come up and they've read those words in the sand that God will not acquit the guilty in this sense. That if they bring false charge or deception, God 
isn't going to let them off the hook. And so oldest to youngest, they begin to walk away. Maybe, maybe the older ones thought, man, I'm really old. I might not make it to Yom Kippur when, when my sin could be abolished, and I might be standing face to face with God and have his wrath come down upon me, and they decide, I'm out of here now. And then the arrogance of the young gets whittled away, and they too leave. Just a theory. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. For the first time in this story, the attention has been turned to the woman. The woman who should have been killed. This whole mob has just kind of dissipated and gone away. And only Jesus and her are left. And he says to her, woman, which in no way is a derogatory term in the first century. Remember, Jesus said that to his mom when they were at the, the wedding in Cana. This isn't, this isn't mocking her or, or calling her something mean. He's just addressing her, woman. And she now moves from being an object to a person. A person with, with feelings and emotions and hurts and desires and hopes and dreams and brokenness. She is now a person in need of a savior. He asked the question, has anyone condemned you? Where are they? There's no one left. See, in the law of Moses, an accusation is to be brought by two witnesses to make the accusation real. There is no one here to accuse her. They're all gone. And Jesus will not condemn her. He offers her grace. He offers her mercy. He offers her forgiveness. He offers her a life, a hope to live in a different way, a life that could be reconciled with God. I would think that when you have a near-death experience, life becomes just a little bit more precious. And what I find very interesting in this story is she never asks for it. She, she may not even know who Jesus is. She, she may not even believe who Jesus says that he is. Maybe no interaction at all with him up to this point. She never asks for grace. She never asks for mercy or to be forgiven. But Jesus, he gives it. In the Jewish tradition, there's, there's, there's a certain sequential response to sin that's supposed to take place. First, you are to admit that you've sinned. It's called confession. Now, this woman was caught. Confession is more than just getting caught. Confession is a condition of your heart, that you recognize you've done something wrong. We never see in this story that, that, that this woman has done this. And then the second response in the this, in this sequence is to repent. In the Hebrew, it's, it's called teshuva, to, to um, resolve not to do it again. Nowhere do we see this woman say that she won't do it again. And then the next response is to, as best as you can, to make 
things right. This is, this is the Jewish tradition for dealing with sin in your life. And Jesus asks none of this from her. And she doesn't freely, she doesn't go through the, prophet, the process. She doesn't say a prayer. She doesn't say, I'm sorry. Nothing. Now, what makes me comfortable in this is if I were to think, well, Jesus could see into her heart and she can, he can see in her heart that she's repentant and sorrowful. And then that's why he offers grace. But, but isn't, that, isn't that just, that fits so nicely with our evangelical dogma, doesn't it? It's just like, I can get behind that. That, that fits the formula of faith. You know, you got to be sorry. You got to repent. And then God, God forgives you. You know, you got to say the prayer. And then you get saved. You can't get saved without the prayer. You gotta, and, and so we, we feel really comfortable in all these things. But what we fail to realize is this. Jesus is scandalous. And we, that makes us really uncomfortable that he doesn't fit nice and tidy into our own little box of the way things should operate. And the grace and the mercy that he gives this woman is no less scandalous. And this is nothing new. God has been involved in scandal way back. Turn Isaiah chapter 65. Verse 1, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. God is talking to his people, Israel. He's telling them, showing them the scandal of grace and mercy. He says, He will be found by people who don't even look for him. And Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 10 when he uses it about in reference to us, the Gentiles, that we will find God when he will reveal himself to us without even us looking for him. This woman never sought after God. She didn't ask for forgiveness or mercy or maybe mercy like, please don't kill me, but the grace of God and Jesus gives it to her, free of charge. She found grace. She found mercy. She found God in the midst, in the depths of her own sin. She found him when she wasn't even looking. That both amazes me and it embarrasses me. That the way that Jesus loves on people. Jesus could condemn her. He had every right to judge her and condemn her. He's God. But he doesn't. She broke his law about adultery, but he doesn't condemn her. I think all too often, I believe all too often, we Christ followers, we um, we put stipulations on people about their behavior and about their life that we ourselves can't live up to, that we ourselves don't even follow. We condemn in others many times the things that we just don't like that's, that's in us. 
and we condemn the sin in other people, the very sin that's in our lives that we just don't want to face. And from this story, we can see what our attitude should be towards someone who has messed up, someone who has made a mistake, someone who has sinned. Maybe we need to be asking questions. Maybe we need to be asking better questions like, what do I need to do to help this person? What do I need to do to help this person find the right path to a restored relationship with God? How can I come alongside them and help them through the consequences of what's now going to happen because of this this sin? Because there's always consequences with sin in our lives. But what can I do to help them through that? What can I do to help them not return to that lifestyle again? I think that we should be offering to people the very thing that we hope we would be offered if we screwed up and made a mistake. That we would offer people grace, mercy, forgiveness. Jesus Jesus doesn't just not condemn this woman. He, He challenges her. Grace and mercy, yes, they are scandalous. I have this belief that when I get to heaven, God willing, I'm going to look around and say, you made it? How did you get here? And I know there's going to be people up there looking at me going, for real? I'm out. There goes the neighborhood, you know? But, but, but the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus is scandalous, but it's also challenging. He challenges her to begin to move her life in a direction of a relationship that's restored with God. That through grace and through mercy, she would begin to pursue a life of holiness. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, no one. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. He offers her a challenge. She has been given mercy. And now he asks her to perform teshuva. Now he asks her to repent. Wait, no, wait. Shouldn't it be that, that we should be sorry and repent and then we're given the grace and mercy of God? I mean, that makes sense to me. But here, Jesus flips it around and he offers her forgiveness. He offers her grace. He offers her mercy and then says, I'll stop that. Don't do that anymore. He wants her to begin to, to engage and live the spark of the divine that's in her life, to live a life that's reconciled before God, before other people, and herself. You know, we, we never know in this story, we never know what the consequence of, of her mistake was. But we know that there, there are consequences to all our sin. But a life that's been reconciled with God a life that's moving in the direction of, of living the, the way that God has called us to live through grace and mercy helps us, allows us to move through those consequences in a way that's restoring things, putting things back together again. This is God's plan for us. We all mess up. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we like to put them in classes of felony, though. You know, there's felony sins and there's misdemeanor sins. Um, and, you know, and, and these aren't so bad, but ooh, don't mess with the. In God's sight, we all fall short. 
If I call you a fool in God's eyes, it's the same as if I murdered you. Go figure that one out. And God's grace and mercy is upon us for everything. But he challenges her to live a different life, to to live a life that's restored back into relationship with God. Jesus confronts this woman, but he doesn't do it with condemnation. See, condemnation is really easy. To judge somebody is really easy, especially for the religious people who think they got it all together and their life is just pure and holy. That's, that's really easy. Jesus, Jesus confronts her with, with the challenge and the scandal of mercy and grace and forgiveness. He never said what she did was unimportant. A life that's lived outside of the harmonies of God is never good. It never goes well. It always falls apart. There is consequence to the sin in our life, and that consequence is deeper brokenness, and that can never be diminished. But Jesus knows that we human beings, we are going to mess up. And he knows that we both have a past and a present. And I believe he chooses to focus on, I'm sorry, and a future. Past, present, right, right. And I believe he chooses to focus on the future. He looks at what we can be. He looks at the potential that's in us, the potential to grow and move the kingdom of God forward, our potential to to reconcile all things back to him, our potential to push back the darkness and bring wholeness into this world. That's what Jesus chooses to focus on, not our past. Because our past is the very thing that we can never change. But we can make decisions to move forward in the future. To live a life that begins to walk in harmony with the things of God. Jesus is the grace of God. And it's the grace to move every tomorrow into a deeper restored relationship with him.